A couple of weeks ago, when our church family meeting uh, we had on a Sunday night, that uh, we talked about beginning the prayer time for our new pastor. And uh, I want to talk about prayer and fasting today. I, I called the church, and I'm going to officially call the church today into a season of prayer and fasting for the next month or so that we pray and we fast so that we have God's heart. So this morning I want to teach about what it means to fast and pray and what the scripture tells us about it. I'm sure that we all have our opinions of fasting and praying and what that means. And maybe some of us here are experienced fasting and prayers. Maybe you've done it. Maybe someone here has been on a 40-day fast. I don't know. Maybe some have been on a one-meal fast. I don't know. But there are some that understand it. There are some that, that understand it and say, well, that's not for me. That's for somebody else. Well, that's, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then others may not have a clue what I'm talking about. So this morning, it is very appropriate that we spend some time teaching on fasting and prayer and what it is all about and what the Scripture teaches about it. The Scripture gives us good examples and encouragement to fast and pray. And let me start this morning by defining what fasting and praying is and what it is not. Prayer and fasting is defined as voluntarily going without food in order to focus on prayer and fellowship with God. Prayer and fasting often go hand in hand, but this is not always the case. You can pray without fasting, and you can fast without prayer. It's when these two activities are combined and dedicated to God's glory that they reach their full effectiveness. It's also having a dedicated time of prayer, and when you do that, it is not a way of manipulating God into what you want Him to do. Rather, this is what it is, again. It's simply forcing yourself to focus and rely on God for the strength and provision and wisdom that you need. Fasting and prayer is one of the most powerful spiritual combinations on earth. True fasting brings humility and alignment with God. It breaks the power of flesh and demons. It kills unbelief and brings answers to prayer when nothing else works. And I'm going to give you an example of that in a little bit. It has been well said that prayer is that prayer is not preparation or that prayer is a preparation for battle. Really, prayer is the battle. Prayer isn't just preparing for battle. Prayer is the battle. And anything that we can do to enhance and the power and the focus of prayer is worth doing, and that's what fasting does. Fasting brings that together. Fasting puts us in harmony with the all-powerful God who demands humility from us and demands humility from those who wish to be close to him. Fasting humbles the flesh. And when it's done for that purpose, it pleases the Spirit of God. God loves a humble person, and God detests a proud person. And fasting humbles the flesh. Now, what fasting is not... Even though fasting is typically concerned with food, it is not a diet, nor is it a means to lose weight. Now, that may be a byproduct of the fast, but it is not the intent of the fast. If we're fasting with the intent of losing weight or a means of controlling our diet, then we are focusing on what we are not eating more than focusing on the intentional prayer and finding God's purpose for the fast. If you're fasting to lose weight, really what you're really on is just an aggressive weight loss plan. And that's not it. When you fast, it has to be combining with prayer. 
You just don't give up a lunch and say you're fasting and praying. You give up a lunch, you pray. You focus. You take that time where you would normally be eating and you pray. That's why it's fasting and prayer, not just fasting. Fasting is, is not magic, nor does it twist the arm of God. See, God wants to do many amazing things in our midst. But he looks for those willing to urgently make the corrections needed in their life to come into line with him. And that's what fasting does. Fasting brings us into alignment with God's word. Fasting brings us into alignment with, with his desires. Fasting takes control of my flesh and my desires. In all of that, it is not twisting God's arm. It is not putting guard... Put, it is not putting God in a box and saying, okay, God, because I'm doing this, you have to do this. That's the wrong intention. We have to get a mind shift here. See, God resists the proud. Successful fasting is also the fastest way to learn patience. It takes patience and endurance to fast for more than a day. If, many, if anyone in here has fasted a day or more, you know that it requires patience. It requires persistence. It requires diligence on your part. And many of God's tests come quicker to us when we do fast. When we have all these tests that come our way, fasting becomes a way to accelerate the testing process, if you will, because it's now saying, God, all right, I'm going to fast track with you. I know you want to do something in my life, but I'm going to now fast and pray, and now I'm going to give you the authority now because of my fasting, because of my taking um, my control of my life because I have to take control of my life. That's what fasting is about, me taking control of something that I have the free will to do. And I say, Lord, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to, I'm going to surrender that to you for this season of time. So to review this point, fasting is not a way for us to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. We are not forcing his hand to do something because of something we are doing. Rather, it's his way of asking us to submit everything to him, including our physical desires. By doing this, we are lining ourselves up with his desires so that he then can have the authority in our lives to bless us according to his will. It's interesting to note that sin entered the world through temptation that Satan used with Eve regarding food. Sin entered the world through an apple or a piece of fruit. Satan enticed Eve to sin through tempting her with eating a piece of fruit that God said not to eat. Doesn't mean that fruit was bad. God just said, don't eat that fruit. That fruit was good for food. It was good to eat. It was, it was good to the eye. It was pleasing to the eye, and it was good for nourishment. But God said, don't eat that fruit. Therefore, sin entered the world when Eve willingly ate something God told her not to eat. Isn't it interesting? Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. See, God didn't tell them it was about touching the fruit of the tree or smelling it or looking at it. It was the act of eating it that was the sin. And it wasn't about them. God didn't say, don't pick that flower or don't cross that particular stream 
or don't touch that particular animal. It was the act of eating and bringing sustenance into their body. God already gave them the whole garden. He gave them every fruit tree in the garden for them to eat. They had no need. They had no want in their life. God gave them everything they needed, everything they desired. All he said was, don't eat from that tree. So it wasn't like God was had them on a starvation plan and they were desperate to eat from that tree. It was a willful choice. And so often, folks, that's exactly what our life is about today. God says, I will give you all things, but don't do that thing. <laughs> and it's not that I have nothing else to do. I have all kinds of choices to do good. But God says, don't do that thing. And so my natural man says, I'm going to do the thing I was told not to do. You see, in a sign, you see a sign that says fresh paint. What do you do? You touch the wall. You want to see if it's really wet, don't you? That's our natural desire. That's our natural heart. And the thing is, God didn't make this a confusing command. There was nothing confusing about this command not to eat this fruit. There was no big formula here. There was, there was nothing that Satan could misinterpret about that. He said, don't eat this fruit. There was no confusion. Satan brought the confusion. Satan brought the temptation. Satan said, did God really say? Satan brought the temptation and the condemnation. So in our life today, when God says don't do something, understand he's making it very clear, don't do but what do we find? We find Satan coming up and saying, you know what? That drink isn't going to hurt me. Did God really say that sex is bad? Did God really say that I shouldn't cheat on my income tax? Did God really say that I should treat my employee, shouldn't treat my employee this way? See, God says, don't do. And when he says don't, young people, what does he really say? Say it loud. When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. It's Satan that comes in with the confusion. It's Satan that brings the word of the temptation that says, you know what, you can do that. God doesn't really mean that. Well, let me tell you, folks, God really means what he says. We see his positive instruction that is intended to give us victory and fulfillment and joy and peace and etc., God doesn't focus on a negative. He focuses on the positive and the good things. But, it's in the, but here it is. It's the evil in us that sees the negative when God is giving us the direction to stay focused on the positive because that goes against our natural man. So when God says, I want you to do something, and, it, it, and it's pushing back, if, 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 I, if my spirit is pushing against what God is, is telling me to do, then I think I should look at my natural man and say, what is that? Why am I rising up against a godly instruction? Why am I rising up against a godly instruction? I should look at myself and think, wow, maybe there's something within me. Maybe there's something within my heart that I need to take control of if God has given me a godly instruction that says don't or do, and I'm resisting to do it or to not to do it. It's a good check, isn't it? Amen. Thank you. It is a good check. See, God wants us not to focus on a negative. He, we see his positive instruction that is intended to give us victory, fulfillment, all that stuff. When it's something that I don't want because it requires a change of my thinking and my action and my part, sometimes that hurts. 
So rather than taking heed and making the change, I call it negative and get offended by it. And that's not right. Let's just say that that's not right. When God brings me a godly word, rather than me get offended by it, I will check my heart. God says, don't. He says, don't hurt yourself. What he's really wanting us to do is pursue and chase only what is good. And there is a lot of good to pursue. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 4, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whenever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. He doesn't say the God of peace will be with you first. He said, whenever you think of true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. Now put those what you've learned and received and heard from me, put it into practice. And then when you put it into practice, the peace of God will be with you. If I'm not living a righteous life, there's no peace. If I'm not living a holy life, then why should I expect God's peace to be in my life? It comes when I think about whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's noble, whatever's uh, lovely, admirable, excellent. When I follow godly principles, He gives me peace. And it's when I don't have peace, I should check my spirit. What am I following? Am I following godly principles or not? Don't get mad at God if you don't have peace when you're not living right. Don't misdirect the anger. Take it where it should go. Romans chapter 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then John, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So we can preach a word of victory because God is, is, is God is in us and greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. And that's good. But we must continue a life of, of, of living right. We must continue to, to, to live as, as, as good as we possibly can. And I know we're going to mess up. I know that. I know I'm going to mess up. And I know you're going to mess up. But that's okay. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't say, well, because I can't live this and I'm not going to live that. What you do when you mess up, you take a King David heart. You come with a heart that's quick to ask for forgiveness and say, God, I'm repenting. And come bring me back. And then get me back in line with you so you can bless me again. But don't stay in the fringes. And don't stay out there and be mad at somebody because somebody's rebuked you. Get in, get in with God. Get in right. And let him change your heart. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. So hang in there and don't worry about it. You fall, get up. And you're going to be okay. It's not how many times you fall, it's how many times you get up. It's how many times you get up. And it's how many times you say, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. And eventually you'll stop doing the sin you're falling in. If you have a sin that's a besetting sin, and if you keep asking God to forgive and then try, forgive and then try, eventually you're going to win. But it's when you stop trying... It's when you say, oh, that's just the way I am. Nonsense. Then the enemy's winning. And then the God is not living you. The God that says, greater is he that is within me, he's not in you if that's where you're at. If you've fallen down and can't get up, understand God loves you. And understand that God wants to pick you up. And understand that when you say, Father, I'm sorry, he will pick you up.
But you have to say, Father, I'm sorry. Can fasting be more than giving up food? I think it can. I think for some, food is not a big deal. For others, it is. For me, food is a big deal. I like food. But for people like Jill, Jill doesn't like food. (laughs) That's not true. Jill likes food. But for some, though, there are people that sometimes food may not be it. It may be Facebook. Whoa. It may be the Internet. It may be my job. It may be my hobbies. Okay? Whatever that is, you can fast that. Here's the key, though. When you're fasting it, you better pray. Okay? Whatever you're fasting, whether it be food or whatever, pray, pray, pray. If you're not praying, then what you're giving up is worthless. Okay? Then it's just a diet or it's just a social correction in your life. Pray. God's calling us to pray. There's a number of Bible references, and I'm not going to go through them because we don't have time, but I'm, I handed a sheet out last week, or the girls did, and I've got another sheet that will be handed out to you today if you don't have one. But there's a number of Old Testament and New Testament references that talk about fasting and praying. So it's important that you go to those on your own time. Please, go to them on your own time. Read the passage. See what God is teaching about prayer. See what he's teaching about fasting so that you can be educated and knowledgeable. So when the enemy come against you and he says, stop praying or stop doing that, you say, no, I'm going to fast and pray. I'm going to continue this because I know that it's right. I know that it's biblical, and I know God's calling me to do it. So you need to understand that. You need to go and find the word yourself, dig it out yourself, so that you don't have a question in your mind why you're doing what you're doing. It is, a, it, is a, it is a called thing for us to do. It is a biblical thing for us to do. Now, I talked to you earlier about fasting and praying, about how, how we should look, and how an example. i got two things to say about that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 and 18. Let's talk about what Jesus said about fasting and praying. Matthew chapter 6 says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So it's not about what people see when you fast. It's about what God sees when you fast. Remember, God always sees the heart. He always sees through your facade. He always sees through your veneer. He sees the heart. So when you fast and pray, you're doing it to please the Father, not doing it to please a man. Very important. What does fasting and prayer accomplish? Well, the focus of prayer and fasting is to take our eyes off the things of this world and to focus our thoughts and attention on God and eternal things. Fasting isn't just a method of punishing our bodies, but it's a process of taking control of the fleshy desires for a season and understanding that God is in control, and by our free will, we are choosing Him over the things of this world. We are proving to God that He is greater than our physical needs and our desires, and that we are willing to prove it to Him for a period of time. So what's really being accomplished when we fast and pray? Since it is given us that focus of our life, it's a major key for us to hear God's voice. We need focus from God more than anything else. 
The world we live in is very distracting. It brings all kinds of, of distractions and enticements to win our hearts and minds and our focus, and it destroys our vision. It destroys our focus. So fasting is a time where we draw ourselves away from the world. We draw ourselves away from the physical influences of the world, and then we let God be our focus. We let God be our direction. We let God be the center of our life. And here is, here is an example in the New Testament of when fasting and prayer was absolutely necessary. If you turn in, chapter, in Mark chapter 9, there's a story here that Jesus was, and his disciples were out ministering. And Jesus was, must have been on the side doing something else. And this father brought this young boy to the disciples that was demon-possessed. And he was filled with a demon. And the, de- and the demon kept throwing the boy in, in water and in fire trying to kill the young boy. It was a very serious demon. It was a very serious situation. And the disciples prayed, and they couldn't cast the demon out. Jesus came, comes on the scene, and Jesus says, what's happening here? First of all, he rebukes him. He says, what's wrong with you, you, you this generation? How much longer, you unbelieving generation? And that's a whole other sermon. I don't want to go there. But the point is, Jesus came, and he prayed, and he cast out the demon. Like that, it was over. It's done. So the disciples were a little confused. So they got Jesus to the side afterwards, and he said, verse 9, verses 28, chapter 9, 28 through 29 says, And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So there are some things in life that cannot be accomplished without prayer and fasting. Jesus said this. What this means to me is that Jesus was living his life in a continual state of fasting and praying. He was continually ready on the spot. He was living a life of balanced fasting and praying. And he fasted. I don't know. We, never, we don't know what, Jesus, what, what his personal life was, but we do know that he prayed a lot. We do know that there were many times where he would take himself up from the mountains, away from everybody, get alone by himself, and pray through the night. The Bible says that on numerous occasions. So we know Jesus was a man of prayer. And obviously, if he's praying through the night, he's probably fasting too. We know he went on a 40-day fast. We know that much. He did that before he started his ministry. But I think Jesus lived in a regular life of fasting and praying, and it kept him strong for the moment. And if you are a Christian person living in this world today, if you want to be spiritually strong, ready to move, ready to conquer, if you want to live victoriously, then you need to keep your life disciplined. And fasting and praying is part of it. I, I, I am really, really, really feeling bad for people that don't think this is necessary. Uh, when people just think, I can come to church, and I can have my hour and a half of church on Sunday morning, and then that's all I need. You know what? I'm, I'm really sorry, people. You're missing the mark. You're missing it. And in some regards, some folks missed it last week. I'm sorry for those that weren't here last week, that weren't here physically last week. And then I heard someone say, I'm sorry for those that were here and still missed it last week. When the Lord is moving, folks, don't put a lid on him. When the Lord is starting to move in our spirit, don't put a lid on him. Let him have his complete way. If you put a lid on him, good luck. Good luck with your life. Good luck if you're going to put a lid on God Almighty. 
Good luck if you're going to put a lid on the Holy Spirit. Good luck living a victorious life. Good luck being a good witness. Good luck going out there trying to win others for Christ. And can I be as bold to say, good luck when you stand before the Father? Good luck when you stand before him and say, when he says, what did you do with your life, Mike? Well, I put a lid on you, God. Good luck with that one. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this a negative comment? Am I beating somebody up? As we conclude this morning, when is it appropriate to fast and pray? When we examine scriptures and we examine the examples of fasting and praying, we see that, that when they were praying and fasting, there were typically specific issues that were at hand. Typically, there was a, a, a crisis coming. When you look in the book of Joel, when, you, when, when Joel called for a holy, when, when Joel called to gather together and have a solemn fast, do you know what Joel was prophesying against? Doom and destruction. There was no blessing in the book of Joel. What Joel was crying out for at that time, those scriptures right there, Joel chapter three and Joel chapter two, that's in this in the in the Bible in a um, in the chapel, those come after the fasting and the prayer. Joel is prophesying doom and destruction unless you as a people do something. So it's, it's scriptural to fast and pray. When the Lord is bringing testing and there's, there's decisions to be made, that is time to fast and pray. Because there's typically some pretty major events happening in the lives of people and in churches and in communities. So what are we praying for? And that sheet that I've handed out, I've listed some specific things that we should pray for. Jenna, if you would go ahead and pass that list out to those that don't have one. These are the needs that I believe, I believe God is asking us to pray for. And you can add your list on. You can add your needs onto this as well if you'd like to. But I'm asking God, I think we need to have guidance as we select the pastor search committee. That we find godly people. People that are full of the Holy Spirit. People that are godly. People that, that want a pastor that will lead this church according to godly principles and not according to man's desires. All right, so we need to pray for a pastor search committee that sees that. We need to pray that the Lord gives this body a unified selection criteria for the new pastor. What do we want this pastor to be? Let's pray for that. We need to continue to pray that he would continue to work in the new pastor's heart for Charlevoix, that, that God is calling a man and God is calling his heart to Charlevoix. Let's pray for that. That's like we're praying for our future, our kids' future spouses. You can fast and pray over that, you know. Parents, grandparents, you can fast and pray for your kids, for their future spouses, that God is calling them to be what they need to be, that God is calling them to be holy and righteous before God so that when it's time, that when it meets your daughter or your son, that they're holy and righteous people. So they're equally yoked. You can pray and fast over that. So I, should, I think we should pray and fast for the new pastor's heart, that he's got a heart for Charlevoix. I think we should grow and, uh, and fast and pray that we grow a spiritual hunger in our body. That we don't have dissension in this body. That we don't have a, a sense of them or they. 
It's a sense of we, that we have a unified spiritual hunger in this body. I pray that the body should have an evangelist heart for our community, that we're willing to reach out to others. We want to fill this church up. We don't, we're not going to fill this church up unless we have an evangelist heart, unless we are going out and living and inviting our friends and our family members and our people at work and people at school and bringing them into church. They get them saved and get them discipled. You can save them out there. You can bring them in here to disciple them. We should have a discipleship class going in here on a regular basis, and I take responsibility for that not happening. But we should have a new converts class. We should have new converts coming into this place every day, every week. We should, have, we should be a rotating class of new converts that we're teaching them the principles, the very elementary truths of the word. That we should continue to pray that the existing leadership continues to lead with spiritual wisdom and spiritual worship. The key is spiritual wisdom and spiritual worship. And that we, have, we give our body a sense of true love and a unified spirit. That we do not allow this church to be separated or polarized. That we do not allow that. That we come against that spirit of polarization. And that we come together unified. And if you have a problem with somebody, go to them and ask for forgiveness. If you have a problem with me, come see me directly. Don't talk. Don't gossip. Don't rumor. It's damaging. It's going to destroy this body. It's going to pull this body apart. And folks, how much more can we be pulled apart? Look at the size of our body right now. We can't afford it. The only way we're not going to let that happen is if we unify ourselves and we commit to ourselves that we will not speak a negative word against a brother. Now, I know it's 12 o'clock. And I know that we have food next door. I know it's potluck Sunday. We have communion right here. I had a really good video I wanted to show you that was called The Intercessor. Powerful video. Seven minutes long. Jane's seen it. She knows what I'm talking about. Let me ask you a question. What do you want to do? Do you want to have communion today? Or do you want to go ahead or do we want to go over there? I'm asking you. It's your church. I'm asking you. I'll do whatever you want to do, okay? But do you want to have communion today? Do you want to continue on or do you want to go eat? Do you want to watch a video? All right. It'll challenge your heart. Amen. Larry, let's watch that video if you would, please. And then we'll have communion. Isaiah basically saying the world has fallen apart staring back at Israel saying judgment is turned away backward and justice stands afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter what's a God to do and he saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no intercessor an intercessor basically means one who fills the gap. If you have a walled city, 
and there is a hole in the walled city. There's just this little part that is like broken down. It's like a pile of rubble, and actually, you can sneak through it. You know, there's a vulnerability in a time of war. If you have an enemy, what's an enemy looking for? The gate, to try and scale the gate. They're looking for breaches or holes in the wall. They're not stupid. They're not going to waste their time going through the front door when they can go through a side little broken down breach. So the enemy, by his very nature, is constantly watching the integrity of the wall. He's looking for holes. We have massive holes in our life that give the enemy access to do with our life what he sees fit to do. We can say, that's horrible. I'm a Christian. Yeah, you're a Christian with breaches. You are not supposed to be a Christian with breaches. One of the key definitions of Christianity could be a man or a woman who, whose walls are repaired, who is made strong. Why? So that they are useful to God. And they're not just constantly inwardly fighting demons. They can be outward focused. God says to Israel, I will bless you so that you can become a blessing to the nations. God's pattern is to make you strong so that you're useful. There is a hedge that is supposed to be built up around your life, and it very likely isn't. You need a strong man. You need someone who can step in and fight off that enemy to make you strong so that you can start focusing outward instead of on your own issues. Most of us as Christians, the church is so weak because we have literally less than 1% of our time that is able to focus outward because we are so caught up in our issues and our difficulties. Even the healthiest among us, we have issues. We have difficulties, whether it's relational, whether it's financial, whether it's health, we have issues. And there's a dying world out there. You know that 150, estimated 150,000 people died and went to hell today? Let's think about this. What did we all do about it? Did we take a step forward in beginning to do something about it? Or are we just stemming the tide from our life falling apart even more than it is? We are living on the defensive instead of the offensive. What we need is the same thing God was looking for back then. The walls are broken down. The city is in disrepair. Israel is, is without a defender. Where's the intercessor? You know who Jesus Christ was? In a nutshell, he's the intercessor. He's the man who stands in the gap. He's the strong man who came and took the full blow upon himself so that we could gather our wits spiritually and awaken and say, I'm in. Thank you for rescuing me. Literally, he took the blow. Everything that was aimed right at you to absolutely decimate your life. He took it square on. Without even a whimper, he took it. For the joy that was set before him because he valued you so much. He took the blow. See, one of the things that happens with the life of Jesus, we have a tendency to make him a mousy character. We have a tendency to diminish his manly strength. We are talking about the greatest warrior of all time. In the Old Testament, the term is Lord of hosts, the captain of captains, the general of generals. And he's a general that led his troops into battle with his own life. He's the one that did it. All the rest of the army was powering in the background. They couldn't fight this army. And he stood up single-handedly and defeated them. That is our enemy.
intercessor. That is our king. In the same way that he stood for you then, I want you to know, he still stands for you now. When you behold the cross, and you behold the resurrected Christ, and when you behold the ascended Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father, you no longer will just remain where you are. You will say, God, do it all within me. For your glory, make me strong. Make me strong to give. God is looking for an intercessor, someone who will make up this breach. We need to become a body that is thinking about every single one around us, as opposed to ourselves. Coming to church going, I need to be prayed for this week. What about who can I pray for this week? Just a different mindset. It's not what this church can do for you, but what you can do for Jesus Christ and this church. Think of that attitude shift, saying, God, you made this life, and you have called me for more than just to save me. You have rescued me so that I can become a rescuer. Who needs rescue? Who needs help? Who needs me to stand in the gap and take the hit? That's the attitude. It's not your skin and how you can save it. It's how you can spend it for His glory. His Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes but we have to go on Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and blood of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, that's the good news, folks. That's the good news. When I'm judged by the Lord, I am disciplined. I am disciplined, and I'm disciplined so that I will not be condemned along with the world. So this morning, if you want to receive communion, I'm going to ask you to stand up. If you feel that in your life, I want you to come forward, and we're going to take communion up here this morning. I want you to just come up here and, and serve yourself this morning. And we're going to take communion around the altar. And we're just going to ask the Lord to do his work. Come on up, Ford. Just come on up. Riley, would you take some back and serve the folks in the back, please?
You know, in the book of Leviticus, when God was given the law to Moses, to the Israelites, it's an amazing book when you read the detail that God went through giving him instruction for the, for the people. Man, if you think we have it tough, folks, you have no idea. Go read the book of Leviticus if you want to know what God demanded of his people. We're in an age of grace today. And so many times we have trampled God's grace because we think because we're in an age of grace that we don't have responsibilities anymore. Well, that's not true. The whole Bible is true today. Every word is true today. Now, thank goodness we don't have to give sacrifices and we don't have to do the things that priests did because it was, it was bad. One thing that he talked about in all the sacrificial giving, whenever they get a sacrifice, and this is the difference between communion today through what Christ did in the cross, because Christ did not come. He did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. He came to fulfill every prophecy, everything that was given. Um, you can gather a little closer here. Everybody's trying to go to the back row again. But what they said in the book of Leviticus is this, that whenever they sacrificed animals, he specifically said, do not drink the blood. Do not eat the blood. Because if you eat the blood of an animal, it's an unclean thing, and you're unclean, and you will be set out. You will be put away from the people. You will be set apart from the people. But here's the difference. In the cross, because Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice for us, he died as the only clean, perfectly pure sacrifice. We're told to drink his blood. The Old Testament says don't because you'll be unclean. The Bible says, the New Testament says, drink my blood. This is his blood. The Old Testament law says you drink blood, you're unclean. The New Testament says you drink the blood of Christ and you're, and you're forgiven. You're, you've made, been made clean through the blood of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that neat how the Old Testament is fulfilled in that? That's a reason for celebration in our life. It's awesome. This is the blood. This is the body of Christ. Would you hold this up in your hand, please? Father, we just dedicate this down to you in Jesus' name. This is your body, Lord, that you freely gave to us. And now, Lord, as we partake together, Lord, we are recognizing that you died on the cross for us. You gave your body for us, Lord. Your body was pierced all the way through. It wasn't just a skin-deep, superficial rash. It was a pure piercing all the way through. And it's been that way forever for you, that you've committed all of your love to us. And now, Lord, help us now to commit all of our life to you. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our sin. Purify our hearts as we come into your table now in Jesus' name. Let's partake together of the body. And Lord, for the blood that we have that we're holding up, this cup of juice represents the blood of Christ. How awesome it is, Lord, that you fulfilled the Old Testament. And now we're told what's what, what once was forbidden to drink because it made us unclean. Now we're instructed to drink because of what you've done for us, because of what the blood of Christ did on the cross for us, because of your un compromising love for us and we thank you for that and we worship you for that and we celebrate now in Jesus name as we partake together Amen Amen Thank you Jesus Thank you Jesus Hallelujah It's okay to say thank you folks It's okay to raise your hands a little bit now and say thank you Jesus for what you've done for us 
thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your unending love. Thank you for your discipline. Thank you for all the things that you bring us together with. We thank you, Father, and we give you praise and glory. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you. We praise your name. We praise you, Jesus. So, Lord, now I know that as we go into this next door to fellowship, Lord, I pray that the spirit of community right now that we are enjoying here, the spirit of unity here, Father, will follow us next door. And, Lord, it will follow us throughout this week as we go. And as we go to our homes, as we go to our jobs, as we go to our place of business, as we go to our school, Lord, I pray that we would develop a fasting prayer mentality, Lord. And I pray that as we focus it now for the next week, and Lord, it may be just, um, I'm not identifying the fast for them. I don't know what they're, I don't know what they can fast. But Lord, if it's a meal, if it's a day, whatever they, whatever the people here, whatever the body fasts, I pray, Lord, you honor it today. And bring us to better, bring us closer because of it, as a result of it. Lord, help us to find your heart. Help us to find your help us to chase hard after your heart. I pray. Go with us now. Let us enjoy the rest of this day. We bless you. We thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.